were to hear the words, Ellis Island, what comes to your mind? For some of us, we think of maybe a past vacation we spent, where we went to New York Harbor and we saw this historical landmark, and it was interesting. Um, I wonder how many of us, though, when we hear that, we have a deep emotional connection. However, this location represented the gateway of freedom for literally millions of people that immigrated to this country about a hundred years ago. Men such as Albert Einstein, Walt Disney, author Rudyard Kipling, musicians Dvorak and George Gershwin, actor Cary Grant, magician Harry Houdini, and John and Mabel Ringling. In fact, a, a simple internet search will show testimony after testimony after testimony of people speaking to the, to the significance of that place. Not just that it's there, but for what it means. That event, the day their great-grandmother, great-grandfather passed through Ellis Island, was a day in history that would affect them for generations to come. Our text this morning speaks of an event that happened in history that would give hope and encouragement and motivation for the people of God for generations to come. This morning we are going to look at a familiar story, Israel's exodus out of Egypt. We want to see how this is not simply a story with, with different figures that that mean different things that we may have heard since we were very young, but this is a story for us today that we need instruction and we need encouragement from. We want to see three primary things. In chapter 14 of Exodus, we want to see how God's glory is sovereignly displayed. We also want to see how God's people are miraculously saved. And lastly, how God's enemies are humiliated and destroyed. And more than anything this morning, I, what I want us to walk away from is that by understanding God's glorious deliverance of Israel out of Exodus, our love would be deepened for the glorious redemption we have in our Savior Jesus Christ. That as we understand God's sovereign Exodus of Israel out of bondage, we would see the connection to our salvation in Christ alone. Before we jump into this text, let us just pause and ask for God's Spirit to illumine our hearts and to encourage us as we do this. Would you pray with me? God of the ages, we praise You that You are not only our high and exalted Lord, but also our Redeemer and our Friend. We thank you for giving us your word so we might know your son and embrace his perfect life and death on our behalf. We thank you for the resurrection power that is in Jesus Christ and the joy of knowing that our old selves have been crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed so that we might no longer be slaves to sin. This is the freedom we celebrate together this morning, so Spirit, would you come and illumine our hearts, lead us into all truth that we may magnify your Son and in turn glorify the Father together. We ask this for His glory. Amen. 
Now, before we look into the context of chapter 14, it's important in a story like this that we back up and we understand what is leading into this story. So the book of Exodus begins with the word and, simply the word and. I mean, you and I probably say this word thousands of times in a day. And actually, most English translations don't bring it out because it doesn't seem that significant. But by this little word, we get a link and a chain that says the book of Exodus isn't really a brand new story with a whole new set of characters doing a whole new, you know, plot. But the story of Exodus is actually the continuation of what God has begun in the book of, Ex- in the book of Genesis. So let's look back for a moment. The book of Genesis reveals God's glory and His mercy primarily to six key figures. God's mercy to Adam, then to Noah, then to Abraham, and to Isaac, Jacob, and lastly, Joseph. The last large section of the book deals with God's mercy and His dealings with Joseph. So the story of Joseph explains then how we find ourselves in Egypt. For at the very end of Genesis chapter 50... Joseph speaks to his brothers in verse 24, and he says this, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here signaling the promise that they would believe what God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So then we read in Exodus chapter 1, the very beginning of the book, beginning in verse 6. Go ahead and turn with me there. Exodus chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. We read, And Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation... But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply and in the event of war they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out, so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor and mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field. All their labors, which they rigorously imposed upon them. Life's not good for Israel right now, right? What they thought was once a safe haven for Israel now had become a torturous prison house in which this torturous slave labor was forced upon them day after day. But in God's providence, a leader is born, a leader by the name of Moses who would be rescued from the king of Egypt's decree to kill all Hebrew males in the land. He is saved by Pharaoh's own daughter. Irony of ironies. 
and raised in the royal court. And many subsequent events occur, and Moses kills an Egyptian while defending an Israelite. He encounters God in the burning bush in chapter 3. He's commissioned to go and to set God's people free. And each of these smaller stories continue to build the plot line that God has something big in the works. So we keep reading. And Moses eventually approaches Pharaoh with God's message of freedom for his people. And Pharaoh mockingly responds in chapter 5, verse 2. And he says, Who is the Lord that I should obey His voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. You see, in the Egyptian worldview, Pharaoh thinks of himself as God. So for him to bow the knee to another God named the Lord was absolutely beneath him. It wasn't going to happen. So a battle begins to ensue now between Moses and Aaron as ambassadors for Yahweh and the Egyptian magicians and sorcerers as ambassador for their God, Pharaoh. And so what we see is almost a back and forth kind of matching one for one of, of these different, different uh, significant events such as the staff turning to snakes, the Nile to blood, and frogs covering the land. And it seems as if the Egyptian magicians and sorcerers can do everything that Moses and Aaron can do. But don't conclude that God is kind of wringing His hand saying, well, we'll try this and, and see if that works. And oh, they can do that too? Well try this. Oh, they can do that as well. Not at all. Think for a moment if you're a, let's just say a, a young father, 30 years old or so, and you have a little three and a half, four-year-old son, and you're in your driveway, and you've got one of those Fisher-Price little basketball hoops, right? And uh, maybe mom's watching from the window and saying, oh, how cute. And, and she sees this happening, and the, the, the father is letting his son score a couple baskets, right? So he's kind of acting as if he's playing defense on his son, and, and, and the son scores a couple baskets. And, and so the, the father's saying, okay, son, it's tied three to three, as if the climax is coming. But we all know the mom is not looking through the window saying, I think the son's about to win. She knows this is simply building the excitement, right? So as readers, we should not conclude that God is, is wondering if this is, He is sovereignly, completely in control. But in His providence, He is allowing this to happen only to build the excitement, setting the stage for a salvation moment that would be unforgettable. So what follows is three cycles of plagues that grow increasingly more destructive, the Nile to blood, frogs, or frogs from the Nile, dust to gnats, flies, Egyptian livestock die, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and finally climaxing into the death of the firstborn son. So we read in Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 29. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. 
for there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go worship the Lord as you have said. Take both flocks and your herds as you have said, and go and bless me also. So after God's people had obeyed the Lord by covering the doors of their homes with blood from the Passover lamb, they left Egypt with haste before the leaven could even rise in the bread. And the Lord's presence led them through, the, through a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And now we find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 14. The people of Israel have left Egypt, and what are they doing? They're carrying Joseph's bones, signaling to us they have connected the dots to the significance of this event. They know God has something huge He is doing this night, a testimony to the fact that they had believed the promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God was freeing His people from slavery. The first thing we want to see in verse 4, and then reiterate it again in verse 17 from this text, the first realization we want to consider is what, what is God doing in all this? What is He up to? We know He's in control, but what is He doing? Well, first of all, we see how God's glory is sovereignly displayed. God's glory is sovereignly displayed. For in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 14, we read this. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord." See, after God instructs Moses to raise his staff and divide the waters, the Lord's motivation comes through yet again in verse 17, where we read, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so not only Pharaoh now, but the Egyptians, so that they shall go in after them. And what? I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. You see, God is telling us here that the primary message of the Exodus matches the primary message of the entire book, which in turn matches the entire message of the Bible, that in all God does, He is unswervingly committed to one thing. His fame, His majestic weightiness, and all that He is going to the ends of the earth. His glory, as the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 42, verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. You know, I think we hear that word glory, and it's a fairly in-house word if you're familiar with a Christian church, and we hear it quite often, but sometimes we don't really understand what what does it mean? What does glory mean? What does it mean to give God glory? What does it mean for God to do everything for His glory? Well, the Hebrew word really has the idea of this heaviness, 
a majestic weightiness, right? So, so to illustrate what the idea of glory gets to, think, think for a moment of a, a 15-pound bowling ball. And think of that 15-pound bowling ball being dropped about five feet above a thin sheet of ice. What would happen? You of all people know, you, you know, it is going to go right through, right? Because the, the sum, girth, and weight, and heaviness of all that this bowling ball is outweighs and outdoes and has more glory than the ice. So when the two come in contact with one another, one's going to go right through. It's similar with God. Whenever God comes in contact with any other object, you, me, Pharaoh, world leader, He never fails to go through sheets of ice. He always wins. He is the most weighty, heavy, majestic being in all the world. And He deserves all glory. So when we sing to Him, when we, when we pray to Him, we look at Him as if He does have all glory, all majestic weightiness to Him. And so herein lies the fundamental problem with Pharaoh. As a self-proclaimed deity himself, Pharaoh believes he possesses infinite glory. Consequently, he mocks Yahweh by saying he doesn't even know him. Right? In a way, God is saying, Pharaoh, you soon will know me. And actually, his grace is intermittent all through those plagues where he gives Pharaoh time and time again an opportunity to repent. And he continues to harden his heart. So God uses Israel almost as bait for the Egyptians. As they leave Egypt, they pin themselves up right against the worst possible place. Now think for a moment, if you're leaving in droves from an oppressive nation, you probably don't want to go to a large body of water and have no plan, right? It doesn't make sense. So that is where they find themselves. No one there that day could have ever imagined what God was going to do. Now, before we further our minds in the story, isn't it easy to slip into a mindset, though, that begins to view the Bible as kind of all about us? We come to it needing almost a therapeutic shot in the arm or... We, we tend to think it exists to make our lives go better. One writer notes, he says, the Exodus directly challenges the idea that God does everything for humanity's sake. Humans are not the ultimate purpose of creation. God's own glory is the ultimate purpose. The Exodus is about establishing God's own fame in the earth. The Scriptures tell us we were created to reflect glory back to God. But so often in our sinfulness, don't we enjoy consuming that glory? We tend to start thinking, I kind of like the limelight. I kind of like the spotlight. And instead of doing what we were always made to do, to deflect or reflect glory back to our Creator and our Redeemer, we tend to consume it. Let me ask you this morning, Art. Or maybe there's some areas in your life in, in which you've kind of adopted a Pharaoh-like attitude 
where you're stealing glory from God? Have you adopted a mindset that you kind of see yourself as your own God, desiring everyone to kind of orbit around your agenda and your schedule, your preferences, your selfish plans? Ask yourself this question. Who is really in control? Who's really in control in your life? Do you live in such a way that says, in all I do, I bow the knee alone to God? The message of the Exodus directly challenges that it's all about us. God is setting up something to display sovereignly His glory to the ends of the earth. The second realization we want to plainly see, though, is how God's people are miraculously saved. God's people are miraculously saved. In our mind's eye, I think we imagine a few, few hundred, a few thousand people maybe. Some of us are familiar with some of those old movies from 20, 30 years ago where it depicts Moses, you know, right there on the sea. And, and we have in our minds, I think, a pretty bad view of what it actually was. Let's get our facts straight. In Exodus 12, 37, the Israelites are identified as about 600,000 men, besides women and children, and a mixed multitude went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So what do we have here? 600,000 men, besides women and children, and a mixed multitude those non-Hebrew people who would have become God-fearers or worshipers of Yahweh. So we're looking at probably a figure well over two million people. I mean, can, do we understand the magnitude of what this represents in Scripture? This is humongous in God's plan. This is probably, if I have my facts straight, imagine half of the metro area of all the population of Minneapolis if it's around four million people or so, half the city gathering for this event. God has set the stage for a salvation moment that would never, ever be forgotten. In verses 13 and 14, we read of chapter 14, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Now, a few verses before this, the, the people of Israel, as you and I probably would, are just, they're, they're looking at the Egyptian army, this world-class, highly trained army, coming up over the horizon, just lining the skyline, and they're saying, Moses, were there not graves in Egypt that we couldn't have died there? What have you done? Let us out here for no reason whatsoever, just so, worst case scenario, we are exterminated and just wiped out here, or we go back and drug back into slavery for more of what we've been experiencing. Why? What is the point? Now, how many leaders would cower under this kind of public humiliation? right? Just, I can't believe I did this. I, 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 would, I had enough faith to believe the Lord, but oh, this is, this is way more than I thought, Lord. But what does Moses do? He's armed with two things. 
the promise of God's presence made very evident to him when God met with him in the burning bush and then the cloud by day and the pillar of fire at night. He knows God is with him. And secondly, the power of God's deliverance and the promise of God's deliverance. He knows in chapter 3, God says, I will bring you up out of the affliction of the Egyptians to the land of the Canaanites. It's as sure as you got up this morning. It's happening. And Moses, by faith, believes. He didn't know how God was going to do it, but in faith, he led all of Israel by these three commands. Fear not, stand firm, and lift up your eyes and see the salvation of the Lord. Wow, can you imagine being there? Moses calls for them to witness God's salvation. The Old Testament is filled with stories that show us the salvation of the Lord, but none more powerful, none more paradigm-setting than the parting of the Red Sea. This visual act of God's salvation will be drawn upon all throughout the Psalms, by the prophets, by the apostles, by Jesus Himself for generations and generations to come. It was never, ever going to be forgotten. Through the most extraordinary means, God miraculously delivers His chosen people, the Israelites, from slavery to freedom as they safely cross the sea on dry land. Incredible. And even though Israel had by and large forgotten God in Egypt, and they had turned to worship the pagan gods of Egypt, and even when they mocked God's servant right up to the very point where God split the sea, God had not forgotten them. Is there ever a clearer message of God's covenant, loyal, faithful love? In this story here. Consider your week for a moment. How did it go? Were there moments where you looked back to Egypt and you longed for things that you know your freedom in Christ has freed you from? Were there times when you not only forgot Him, but you did turn back to worship the gods of our culture? Yet be encouraged this morning that while you may have failed to walk in obedience and fidelity to God, His love for you is not based on the consistency of your obedience, but rather on the consistency of the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Is that not good news for us? So we have observed God's sovereign display of His glory. We have seen His miraculous salvation of Israel through the watery passageway of the Red Sea. But lastly, let us not fail to see how God's enemies are humiliated and destroyed. It is at this point that the Old Testament portrays Yahweh as a mighty warrior who fights on behalf of His people. God's enemies are humiliated and destroyed. We pick up with the narrative and Exodus 14, verse 26. Allow your eyes to fall down the passage to verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, 
over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak, while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them, to their right hand and to their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power with which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. Can you imagine this bewildered group of former slaves watching? These, we have no idea how high these walls of water were. If it's two million plus people, I would imagine it's not the small little corridor that we think. This was probably huge. And at one decisive moment, God brings it back to its normal state. And He not only frees them from bondage, but they're staring at the very people who whipped their backs day after day, dead on the seashore. He triumphed over His enemies. Salvation from the Lord had led them not only out of torturous slavery, but He had destroyed their enemies. We have to realize that in the same way the resurrection or even the death of Christ occurred on an actual day in human history, this event is not a myth. It is not a fabricated story so our children can have something to learn on flannel graphs. This is true. It happened in time and space in human history, and it is something that ought to never be forgotten. And the reason the Exodus is significant for us today is because it powerfully prefigures our new Exodus in Jesus Christ from slavery to bondage to sin to a place of inheritance as God's chosen people. We have been set free in the gospel. We see this in Luke chapter 9, as Moses and Elijah are conferring with Jesus at the transfiguration, and Luke chooses a specific word that sets us off that he's alluding to something. And he says this, while these men were conferring together with Jesus about, quote, his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word there, departure, is the Greek word exodon. Luke could have used a number of different words, but he chose that. And with Moses standing right there, the connection is clear. Jesus is leading us in a new exodus to freedom, to a place of inheritance in himself. But with even greater clarity, Paul writes in Colossians 1, 13 through 14, in no uncertain terms, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ Jesus not only delivered us from bondage, but He has defeated our greatest enemy. Colossians 2 is not done. Paul continues to speak. 
He says, Christ canceled the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Just as Israel had watched their enemies lie crushed, humiliated, defeated in the watery grave of the Red Sea, so Jesus has crushed and decidedly and triumphantly conquered sin. And through Him, we receive our freedom and deliverance and membership into His royal family. This is the gospel. This is the good news that we share. And it really is a tragedy when we read our Bibles as a hodgepodge of unrelated random stories rather than having a true, coherent message for us today. Brothers and sisters, the Exodus narrative is for us. But God was not finished with Israel. After freeing them from slavery, from Mount Sin- after freeing them from slavery, He knew this was just the beginning because Mount Sinai was coming. He had delivered His, his people so He could lead them to a place where they would receive his word. And just as Israel was saved so they might receive God's word and enjoy his presence in the tabernacle, so too are we saved so that we might live God's word and enjoy the presence and the power of his spirit with us today. If you are new to Christianity, perhaps you find yourself this morning and you're a friend of someone who attends here and Christianity is something that is, is kind of a, a new idea, or maybe it's something that you left with your childhood, and through circumstances in your life, you, you find yourself coming back to being intrigued by the things of the Lord and how the Scriptures lay out who God is. Well, can I ask you this morning, do you long to be set free from the slavery of sin? Do you realize that's how God views it? Do you recognize sin for what it truly is? A harsh taskmaster bent on your total destruction? Perhaps this morning you're intrigued by Christ and this message of the Exodus. I assure you we all need the rescuing power of Jesus Christ. And it is only in Him alone that we find our freedom. For those of us who are followers of Christ, Those of you who have trusted in Him alone, where are you this morning? How does this story impact and touch down in your life? Are you still longing for Egypt? Do the false gods of Egypt still have a hold of your heart? Have you forgotten that you've been delivered as the Old Testament prophets had to continually remind God's people, did God not set us free In the Exodus, did He not free us from Egypt? How much more can He do for us today? Have we forgotten? Would you turn from your neglect of Christ and run to Him as your highest joy and your greatest delight? It is my prayer this morning that by understanding God's glorious deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, our love would be deepened for the glorious redemption we have in Jesus Christ. 
And immediately after, God destroyed every Egyptian soldier on the Red Sea while it was deathly silent on the seashore. A single voice erupts in singing. And everyone looks, and it's the voice of Moses. And in chapter 15, immediately after God delivers His people, we read this. Moses says, I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and the rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. You see, God's people, when they see His salvation, they cannot help but respond in praise. So as the musicians come, we are going to do just as the people of God did that day, and we are going to respond by observing God's salvation and just simply sing the song, Jesus, thank you for our ultimate deliverance from slavery of sin to freedom in Him. Let's stand and sing together, Jesus, thank you. The mystery of the cross I cannot